And um, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again, but it really is um, a pleasure to introduce Liv Bowen, who is, um, we think, the 14th Shirabi Professor of Botany. Uh, the reason we think is because um, we think we may have lost one somewhere um, between the First and Second World War, but we're not exactly sure. Um, but the 14th named Horti Custis, uh, because we have Horti Prefectus, I think, me, uh, and we have a keeper of the garden as opposed to the governor, and that is the Shirazi Professor of Botany. And very appropriate room to have this session because uh, this was Professor Dorbany's uh, lecture room, and uh, he was number one, two, Five. Um, Liam joined us two years ago. Just over a year. Is it just over a year? Um, from the John Innes Centre, which is that way uh, in Norfolk. Uh, there he had, well, he originally worked for two years and uh, 18 years later he came here. Uh, before that, he uh, was a PhD student and postdoc uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. And prior to that, was at University College Dublin. Uh, where he did his first degree. And um, as I say, he joined uh, the Tiny Garden staff um, with the day job up the road in plant sciences, but this is a really important bit, um, <laughs> just over a year ago. Uh, and um, has instantly made a mark lecturing for first years. Um, uh, and they love that. And um, I'm sure this is going to be absolutely terrific. And thank you very much. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here to talk to you this evening. Uh, what I'm going to try to do is highlight some areas of modern root biology where we're beginning to use genetics and a variety of other technologies to understand fundamental principles of how roots work. Using that knowledge, we can then begin to engineer our way out of engineer solutions that we see ourselves having. Can we use this knowledge to generate crops that may actually be able to uh, provide higher yields uh, in, in the coming century when we're all faced with uh, a, a quite sizable uh, challenges. And I'll start the lecture by uh, highlighting some of those challenges. Once I've highlighted the challenges, I'm going to talk about three new, well, three, let's say, molecules that can affect plants. Some of them are good, plants need them in large amounts, and then the other ones are bad, and the plant goes to great lengths to try to get rid of them uh, if they grow in soils that uh, have large amounts of aluminium. But the problem that we're facing today, and I'm sure you've heard this alluded to in the earlier lectures, is the severe case of population increase. The population uh, at the moment is somewhere between six and seven billion. By 2050, it's likely to be somewhere around 9 billion. So we're going to expect a 50% increase in the population over the next 40 or 50 years. Um, that population needs to be fed. And unfortunately, there's not that much land left that we can begin to use to, uh, to grow those plants, to uh, feed uh, the, the, this burgeoning uh, population that we have. So we've got a number of things that we need to do. What we've done in the past is we've increased yields. So if you look at this uh, panel here, what I've done here is between 1960 and uh, 2010, we've plotted the increase in yields, essentially production in this axis here. And what you can see is that the production of cereal grains, so this is wheat, maize, and rice, has increased linearly over the last 50 to 60 years. Uh, other crops, there's been more modest increases. The uh, root crops, you can see here, there's been a very slow increase, while the coarse grains, the millets and the sorghums have almost plateaued. If we could continue along this trajectory by doing nothing, there'd be no problem. But unfortunately, we can't do that. This is now plateauing off. We're not seeing increases in yields. We're not seeing increases in yields. And remember that we're expecting a 50% population increase. In addition to that, we can't afford to grow plants the way we've been growing them for the last 50 years. The last 50 years saw the, the Green Revolution, where essentially we gave copious amounts of nitrogen to, uh, to crops, and we plenty of water. And so we bred for crops 
that really grew on, on limited nitrogen and water conditions. So what we can't do is we can't use essentially the crops that we bred that are feeding us today. We need what um, Jonathan Bates at Penn State University has called, we need a second green revolution. We essentially need a revolution that's going to allow us to increase yields, but in the context of decreased inputs. So basically, we need to get more from our plants by giving them less. So how are we going to do this? So what we can do is we can begin to use what we have more efficiently because these increases have been dramatic, but they've also been quite wasteful. One of the things that is going to happen is, whether we like it or not, more land is going to be taken into agriculture. So what we like to say, as plant scientists and agriculturalists, is that we need to attain these increases in food production without increasing the amount of land, the area of land that's been put to the plough. This is theoretically what we'd like to see, but it's not going to work like that. And I can give you one example that illustrates this very well. There's large amounts, 20%, 25% of Brazil is a sort of a savanna, a cerrado. And this savanna is, as we speak, is being ploughed up for sugarcane. And there are green reasons to grow sugarcane there because Brazil has, uh, sugarcane growth in Brazil is a very effective way of producing uh, biofuels, unlike the biofuels that we're producing uh, this far north. And the, the only problem is, is that we're ploughing up huge amounts of Cerrado to do that. And that's happening as we speak, and it's going to happen. The petrochemical companies over the next five to 10 years are <coughs> going to plough up Cerrado. So there's no question. So some people may debate as to how steep these various curves are. So this is the global increase in uh, uh, area. So this is the, the increase, the amount of area under agriculture. And you can see that there is this gradual increase. And in developing economies, this is, is, is steeper than the global number. So this is going to happen. Now, if we are going to dig up these regions of very high biodiversity, then uh, we really do have a moral obligation to use them efficiently. So more land will be taken uh, into agriculture. But a problem with a lot of this land is that it's actually not going to be very productive land. There's a reason why it's still savanna. There's a reason why it's not already being brought uh, uh, into, into agriculture. And so we're talking like a, a region something like this. So this is a, a, a photograph from the web, actually, of a typical cerrado. You've got this savanna-like uh, vegetation. Got uh, these not very tall trees, and you've got a scrubby uh, understory. Now, this looks a bit weedy to you, but there are approximately 10,000 species of plant growing in this uh, area of 20% of, of, of Brazil, and over 40% of those plants are endemic to Cerrado. So there are four, four and a half thousand plants that you find growing in Cerrado in this part of Brazil, and they don't grow anywhere else on Earth. And it's going to be targeted, and it's going to be put under the plow. And it's not very good land. They're very acid soils. Very often we find that it's these soils, these soils that are nutrient poor, uh, have very high levels of, of elements that plants don't like, develop very high biodiversity. We see the same in Cape Flora in Southern Africa. We've got huge biodiversity in this region where the soil is useless. Southern Africa was part of the old Gondwana continent that hasn't had a glaciation for nearly 300 million years. This is a really, truly spent soil, but it's huge biodiversity. Western Australia is the same. Ancient continent, weathered soils, no nutrients. So if we are going to plough up these areas, we really need to make sure that we use them as efficiently and as effectively as possible, and that we identify those areas that are rich in biodiversity, and if we can avoid those, we, 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 we can. So, Cerrado has very acid soils. One of the things that you see in acid soils is aluminium toxicity. 
So, and the toxicity, so all solids have aluminium in them because all clay particles have, are essentially aluminium silicates. But the difference in acid conditions is that these aluminium silicates begin to break up and aluminium ions are released into the soil and these aluminium ions then can be taken up by the plant. And of course, it's the plant's job to take ions out of the soil, the phosphate, the nitrate, the potassium that it takes up, it transports into the cell. And while we don't exactly know how aluminium is causing toxicity, it's likely that it's plugging up some of these channels, these portals through which these other ions uh, enter the, the cell. So, this is a very simple graph and it highlights the effect that aluminium has on, on root growth. Uh, I'm going to come back to this a little later, so I just want to orient you. So, this is a growth experiment where some roots, young seedlings, were grown in hydroponic media and they were grown in the absence of aluminium, so this is in a, in a low nutrient medium, and so we're getting the growth over a short period of time of a root elongation to approximately 1.5 centimeters. And then if you add a small amount of aluminium chloride here, then you hugely inhibit the growth of these uh, roots. Okay. Now, this isn't a cerebral, this isn't a Brazilian restricted problem. You get this anywhere you've got acidic soils red marks acidic soils. So we can see in the Paleoarctic regions here, so these areas where you get a lot of uh, precipitation, they tend to develop very acid soils. Uh, you see the British Isles, uh, very acid soils, huge amounts of uh, Southern uh, America, South America and uh, Central um, uh, Africa. So this is a global problem. I'm highlighting the problem that we have uh, in, in this region. But the technology that we can use to try to develop plants that will grow in these habitats, as you can see, will have the potential to in enhance uh, plant growth, uh, not only in Brazil, but around the world. Okay, so what do plants do when they're faced with aluminium? So what they do is they secrete large amounts of small acids into the soil. So acids such as citric acid, like all acids are essentially going to be uh, variants on this theme. So we've got a carbon backbone here, okay, and then we've got these carboxyl groups. So the different acids that are secreted by plants when uh, confronted by aluminium actually just differs in, in more or less in, in the length of this carbon chain here. So we've got malic acid, oxalic acid, citric acid being produced. Um, and what happens is this acid is secreted into the soil and it binds to the aluminium. So I told you that the acid soils release the aluminium from the silicates. By secreting the citric acids and these omega acids into the soil, you essentially chelate the aluminium. You form, form precipitates that uh, then stop the aluminium entering the cell. You essentially put too many knobs on it and it can't cross the membrane. You see something similar if you grow hydrangeas in uh, high uh, aluminium soil. So on low aluminium soil, you get these pink flowers. And then as aluminium chelates the pigments in the flowers, you get a change from blue and uh, from, from the pink through purple and into blue. And this uh, rather nicely highlights how you, you know, when aluminium is taken up into a plant, it can be chelated, it can be bound up uh, and made relatively harmless by uh, various pigments in the plant. But the strategies that plants use to cope with growth in these conditions is to secrete these acids into the soil. So to show how these acids work, I'm going back to that little graph, that histogram that I showed. So this is the 1.5 centimeter growth that we saw in our control uh, roots, so these are roots that were grown without aluminium, and now if you grow plants with aluminium chloride, now you, you hugely inhibit growth, and now if you grow them in aluminium and add back malate, oxalate, or citrate, so these are these acids, what you find is then that you can restore the growth of the root. So the root has the ability to secrete these acids into the soil to, to render the aluminium harmless and get on with its business uh, of growth. So, 
it turns out that the secretion of these acids is induced. So it's not a default setting. If plants are growing in soil that has very little aluminium, it doesn't bother spending energy on producing these acids and secreting them into the soil. These are quite expensive, these acids. They're part of the TCA cycle. So this is a cycle that goes on in mitochondria, which is the, essentially the energy house within the cell. So by pumping these out into the soil, the plant is actually expending quite a lot of energy uh, in doing so. So a plant doesn't really want to be doing that unless it really has to. Um, and so it turns out that the induction, uh, that, that the, the secretion of these acids is induced. So what we've got here is uh, a curve, and so are two sets of curves. So up here, we've got malate production. So this is malate uh, from low to high here, and this is citrate from low to high here. And this is time zero and increasing time after treatment. So what we do here at time zero is we add aluminium to the root system. And then over time, we look at the secretion of malic acid or citric acid into the surrounding medium. And these white balls here uh, indicate the aluminium uh, sensitive line. So this is, we're looking at secretion of these acids into the medium after aluminium has been added. And this is an aluminium sensitive line. And we can see we get an induction, but we get very small amounts of induction. So some acid is produced, but not so much acid is, is, is secreted. And as a result, these plants are quite sensitive to the aluminium in, the, in, in their um, in the medium. Aluminium resistant lines, on the other hand, have a huge induction of, of the acid. So here uh, we can see in these, these black balls, these are a variety of lines where what we've done now is we've added our aluminium and the aluminium has very rapidly stimulated the secretion of these small acids in, into the surrounding soil. So there are two take-home messages from this. One is that the secretion of acids is correlated with sensitivity to aluminium. If you secrete a lot of acid, you're resistant to aluminium. If you don't secrete acid, you're susceptible to, to aluminium. The other take-home message here is that this suggests that there's actually genetic variation for these traits. So the resistant line and the aluminium sensitive line are different backgrounds, they're different genetic backgrounds. It turns out, in fact, that the aluminium-resistant wheat, this is wheat here, uh, the aluminium-resistant plants are from Brazil. So they've been adapted and selected over generations to grow in these aluminium-rich soils. And the, uh, the susceptible plants are found through uh, in, in, in a variety of places. So this is a schematic that shows the amount of citrate efflux. So what was done here was plants were grown in medium, aluminium was added to that medium, and then the amount of acid that was produced by those roots was determined. And what you can see is uh, there are two types of bars here. There are bars that are shaded in grey, and then there are the odd bar here that are white. Okay, and it's these grey barred plants that are relatively uh, resistant. And the general pattern is that at this end, so the high secretors, so these plants that produce a lot of acid are all resistant. Whereas those plants that produce uh, small amounts of acid may or may not be resistant. So what this is telling us is that there's probably more than one mechanism controlling resistance. And one of those mechanisms is the production of acid. Now, what I told you earlier was this genetic variation. So, for example, if we look at egret here, so this is this uh, cultivar of wheat here, egret, and then we look at Carazinho, can't pronounce it, Portuguese, uh, anyway, so the C cultivar from Brazil. And what we can see is that there's difference in the production of uh, acid, and this production uh, is correlated with sensitivity. So because we've got these genetic differences, we can do genetic mapping, and we can map these traits to chromosomes. I'm not going to go into what mapping is, but essentially mapping allows you to identify the genes that control traits. And here the trait is 
resistance to aluminium or citrate production. And so what this has allowed us to do is to, well, it's allowed, not us, but a, a group in Australia to do, and in Cornell in the United States to do, is to map the genes and identify the genes that confer resistance to um, uh, to, to aluminium. And the gene that was identified, uh, there are two genes, and one of the genes that has been identified is ALNT1, and ALNT1 uh, stands for aluminium-induced malate transporter. And so what this is, is it's an inducible transporter, and the transporter's job is to take malate from the cytoplasm and pump it out into the soil. So it's essentially the engine at the cell surface that exports the malate. And so what's, been sh what's shown here is a number of experiments where uh, wild type, so this is a normal plant, V8, which is a susceptible plant, so this is a plant that's very susceptible to, um, uh, sorry, very resistant to, um, no, sorry, it's susceptible to uh, aluminium. And then there are three transgenic lines. And what I mean by a transgenic line is this is a susceptible plant that's had an extra gene added to it. So it's been genetically modified and it contains this ATML, ALNT1 gene. And so we find that there's no difference between any of these genetic backgrounds, the wild types or the transgenic lines here harboring this extra gene. So when we grow them in the presence, or in the absence of aluminium rather, these guys all grow perfectly happy, so they all grow around the 100 percentile. But now when we grow these wild-type plants on high levels of aluminium, we see that their growth is dramatically stunted. But the plants carrying this ALNT, this aluminium-induced malate transporter gene that's expressed at high levels, um, essentially show no inhibition of growth at these high inhibitory concentrations uh, of aluminium. So this suggests that if we haven't used genetics to identify the gene that controls the, the, the production of, or the export of acid into the soil, if we reintroduce this into a susceptible line, we can make that line relatively aluminium resistant. So if we take a look now more closely, Here's a control plant. What we're doing here is we're looking at uh, plants that have been grown hydroponically. And this is our wild type plant. So this is the control, the normal plant. And this plant is genetically identical to this plant, except that it's got this extra copy of the ALNT1 gene. And you can see that the root system that forms is much larger in the transgenic line than in the control line here, when they're grown in the presence of aluminium. And if you look using the scanning electron microscope closely at these, the tips of these roots, so the, the, these roots grow from the tips at meristems, we can see that the meristematic region, the region where the growth of the root is in uh, this resistant line, uh, looks perfectly healthy, whereas in the control plant that doesn't have this gene, doesn't contain this gene, the whole structure is falling apart. So this, in principle, shows that if you take this gene, you can confer aluminium resistance um, on an otherwise susceptible plant. Now, this is hydroponically. You'd always want to see this in soil, in the real environment in which these plants are growing. And so this is a, uh, a representation of what, sorry, this is a, an image of, of root systems. These are very difficult experiments to do. Uh, of uh, aluminium susceptible line here, so this is B26, uh, and then this is a naturally occurring resistant line, and they both plant roots have been grown in the presence of aluminium, and what I hope you can see is that this plant has a much more extensive rooting system than this plant has, and then what we've done here is we've taken the ALNT1 gene and introduced it into this line. So this plant is genetically identical to this plant except that it also carries this extra copy of the ALNT gene. And what you can see is that the transformation with this gene, having this gene, has transformed this susceptible rooting system into this more bushy root system that resembles the, the naturally occurring uh, resistant variant.
So to back up here, what we've shown through these experiments is that the secretion of acids is important to detoxify soils for rooting systems. And that using genetics, we've seen variation for these traits in different lines. These traits have been mapped and have facilitated the identification of genes that control the acid secretion. And then these sorts of experiments here told us that we can now transform plants that were susceptible into aluminium resistant lines, mimicking the state that we see in the natural genetic variants uh, that we see in the crop. So that's aluminium. Uh, I'm ending the aluminium bit on, on, on this because if we are going to cloud this up, we really do have a moral obligation, I think, to make this land as productive um, as is possible so that those plants that have been sacrificed won't be wasted. And uh, we're beginning to understand the basic biology behind the ability of some plants to grow in aluminium. And by tapping that knowledge, we have at least some tools that we can consider. We don't necessarily have to use them, but we can consider using in the future to grow plants in conditions where aluminium would normally uh, be limited. So that's the toxic uh, mineral as such. But there's a, a more obvious problem that's confronting plants, and, uh, and that's <coughs> all, almost all uh, agricultural systems now involve large inputs of NPK fertilizers. These are nitrogen, uh, phosphate, and potassium fertilizers. This is a, just an image I got off the, uh, off the web, and you often see these numbers, the various proportions of NP and K. And almost all agriculture in the developed world and in the developing world, major tracks in the developing world, uh, depend on fertilizer. There's a slight problem with fertilizers. It's very expensive and it's very energy inefficient. So we can get lots of nitrogen into these fertilizers, but we expend huge amounts of energy fixing atmospheric nitrogen, getting it into a form that plants will take up. Because there's very little nitrogen in the soil. The atmosphere is, what, 78% nitrogen gas. This nitrogen gas in the atmosphere is essentially inert. So in order to react the nitrogen gas and turn it into fertilizer, so to speak, we use huge amounts of energy. We heat the nitrogen gas up under very high pressure. And in those conditions, it will react and can produce ammonium and subsequently phosphate, or uh, nitrates that uh, go into uh, fertilizers. And given our problems with uh, fossil fuels, we really need uh, to develop more efficient ways of using nitrogen in agriculture. Phosphorus, uh, sorry, um, phosphate um, is, is a, has, a, has a similar but different problem. Similar problem insofar as we use large amounts, but in many parts, 40% uh, uh, of the land uh, of the Earth's agricultural lands are phosphate deficient. 30% uh, of China is, that's the entire wheat growing region in China is phosphate deficient, phosphorus deficient. And we mine for phosphorus. It's mined, it's a non-renewable resource. Estimates suggest that 50% of the remaining uh, resources will be uh, finished uh, in 50 years. So it's a non-renewable resource and we need to find more of it. But there is a rub here. We own plants only use 20% of the phosphorus that we put onto the land. So there is some scope there for, for developing better plants. And potassium in the same way is ultimately derived from rocky minerals. We mine for all of the potassium that we put on the land. I'm not going to explain everything there is to know about phosphorus, but I'm going to refer here to some research that we're doing in the lab to give a, a bit of a personal touch to it. It turns out that roots are covered in a, a, a mass of hairs that resemble fungal hyphae in many respects. And these uh, hairs grow out from the surface of the root and into the soil and are very efficient phosphate mining devices. Nitrogen and potassium dissolve in soil water and can be sucked up by the plant as it sucks up water, but phosphorus can't. Phosphorus forms phosphates. In the soil, these phosphates bind very tightly to clay particles or even precipitate in the soil, so that soil water actually contains very small amounts of phosphate. 
And plants actually have to go and mine it. So they grow out into a region, they secrete acids, and that dissolves and releases the phosphorus from the clay particles for immediate takeoff. So while well, I say uh, nitrogen and potassium uptake is a bit like oil drilling, uh, oil drilling, you just suck it up. Phosphate is more like mining. You've got to grow to where the sites of phosphate, you've got to dissolve them at the pit phase, so to speak, and then the plants go to take them up. These are uh, the, the root hairs growing on the surface of a rice root. You can see they uh, form little masses and then they grow out into these spaces. Um, rice I've used as an example because it turns out that paddy rice has real phosphate problems. A lot of plants get their phosphate through a symbiotic uh, relationship with fungi. These are mycorrhizal fungi. Uh, mycorrhizal fungi don't grow in paddy fields because the low oxygen tension at the bottom of these legs, uh, these, these water uh, bodies. So there is uh, an area, the International Rice Research uh, Institute, programs to try to develop rice with more efficient phosphate uptake mechanisms. And so our hope is that by characterizing how these cells grow, we will at some stage be able to develop some technologies that may be useful. So let me just describe to you what uh, happens when a root hair grows. So this is uh, the uh, scanning electron micrograph of uh, the root of another species. This is Arabidopsis thaliana, a cress. So the meristem is down here. This is this population of dividing cells that gives rise to the, the body of, of the root. Uh, cells in this region are in the so-called elongation zone, so growth is continuing here, there's no cell division. And then finally, elongation in this orientation stops, and hairs grow out into the medium. This is a close-up of a, of a three-day-old seed, and we've grown it on a petri dish. Here's the seed coat, the root is growing downwards, and the future shoot system is going to develop up here. If we now look at the tip of this region here, it's blown up in higher magnification. This is a, a really quite an unusual uh, cytology or cellular organization, subcellular organization. All growth in this cell occurs in this region here. There's no growth taking place along the sides. And this growth at the tip gives us a worm-like morphology, but also a worm-like function, because the growth at the tip allows this tip to sense where local nutrients are or where physical barriers are, and these root cells, root hair cells, will grow around those barriers seeking out uh, nutrient. So our project has been to understand how do these cells develop? What's the genetic mechanism that controls the growth? What's the evolution of that mechanism? Where did land plants get it from? So in many respects, my research is completely useless. It's of no value to anybody else. But there's a, a little concern that it may be useful if we actually develop some technologies that uh, may allow us to develop crops that have altered nutrient uptake capabilities. Highlighting the role of root hairs, I mentioned that root hairs are important for the uptake of uh, ions like uh, phosphate. They're also important for the uptake of uh, iron as well, because iron, like phosphate, has a chemistry that uh, means that it tends to stick and form precipitates in the soil and it's difficult for the plant to get at. If you grow a plant in standard conditions, these are your standard root hairs that you get at the length of you know, 200 microns. Um, if you grow a plant in low phosphate conditions, you inhibit root growth and you increase root hair length. So what the plant is doing is it's investing a lot of energy in growing long root hairs because it knows that root hairs can very effectively explore large volumes of the soil to, to get a phosphate. So the plant uses these hairs to, to get a phosphate and it has this plastic response. We call this a plastic response, the fact that if you grow plants in different conditions, you get very different morphologies. And this is something that makes plant development really very different from animal development. So animal cells, like your cells, my cells, they developed in an embryo that was cosmetic at 37 degrees in very invariant conditions. Homeostatic devices were used to maintain that constant environment. Whereas these poor cells, they got to deal with all sorts of insults, be they chemical or not, uh, during the life, uh, their lifespan. So to try to understand what's controlling the development of these cell types, 
What we've done is we've taken uh, a genetic analysis. We essentially look for plants where root hairs don't grow. So this is one such example. So this is a close-up of a wild-type root hair. So the root tip, the meristem, is down through the floor. The shoot is going to fall out through the form through the roof, and you can see this normal uh, pattern of root hairs. This is a mutant that lacks root hairs. It's a loss of function for recessive mutations in an RSL gene, and so that tells us that the difference between this plant and this plant is that the RSL gene, or an RSL gene, is non-functional in this plant, while it's functional in this plant. So there's only one difference, there's one genetic difference between these two. Otherwise, their complete set of genes is identical. So this tells us that the RSL gene is important for the development of, uh, uh, of the root hair. But it's very easy to stop an engine working. Okay? So you could pull out lots of plugs, you could empty the tank, all sorts of things. It doesn't really tell you how an engine works. But if you can actually turn an engine on and make it an engine that doesn't work work, then you do know something about how an engine works. So we've done the analogous experiment here. We've done a, what we call a gain-of-function experiment. So here's our, our wild type, our normal uh, plant. And what we've done here is we've taken one of the RSL genes and overexpressed it. So this plant is making far more RSL protein than it normally would. And so this is one experiment we did a few years ago, and I'm very, it's probably my favorite ever experiment. So here's our meristem down here. So the root is growing through the soil uh, here. Root areas are initiating here. They're growing as far as this uh, green line, okay? And then they're stopping, okay? And then af after, between the green line and the red line, there's no growth taking place, but the cells are staying alive. So these are functional root areas, so they're they can be active in taking up nutrients. Okay, and then after this red line, these cells all die, they shrivel up and die. In this plant that's exp expressing high levels of RSL4, root hair initiating starts off more or less the same. The growth rate of these cells is essentially the same as wildlife, so there's no difference here. But we do see a difference here. Instead of stopping growth here, these cells continue to elongate, and they elongate until they die. This red line here indicates the point of death. And so what overexpressing the RSL4 gene allows us to do is it allows us to maintain that root hair cell in the growth phase. It allows this cell to stay growing. So this experiment tells us that RSL4 really is quite an important gene because if you don't have RSL4 there, there's no growth. If you have too much RSL4, you get too much growth. So what we say is constitutive expression of RSL4 gives us constitutive growth. Now this gives us a tool now to begin to manipulate root hairs in plants. So I'm going to leave science behind and move into engineering and technology where we're applying the knowledge that we have uh, to begin to uh, answer some uh, challenges that face us. So really what we'd like to be able to do is now, can I do something useful with our RSL genes? Can we take, look at these genes, manipulate their expression in crop species to enhance their, their yield? And so the plants that we've been working on are, are rice, barley, and wheat. Uh, we've got collaborators who are doing the maize bit. And so what we're trying to do here now is can we increase the efficiency by which plants take up phosphate. So I said early on in the lecture, 80% of phosphate that you farmer sprays onto his or her fields is lost to the plant. They take up 20%. And one of the reasons they don't take up more is they can't get it. So if we could make hairs longer, we may in actual fact be able to allow these plants to access more of that growth-limited phosphate. So we don't have an answer yet. But what we've started to do is we've started to try to identify these RSL genes uh, in rice uh, and in other cereals. And so what I've shown here is this, don't worry about the detail, it's just a, you know, a phylogenetic tree showing that these genes exist in, in basically every land plant that we've looked for. So if, if there's a plant and we can get DNA from it, we find RSL genes. So every plant has these genes. And in red here, I've indicated uh, some of the, the rice genes that we found. So 
We know that um, RSL genes controls the, the growth of root areas in Arabidopsis. Now we're beginning to look at what they're doing in, in the grasses or in the cereals. And so the first experiment you might do, having identified these genes, is to say, well, are these genes expressed in a root hair? And uh, this, indeed they are, I wouldn't tell you if they weren't. Uh, so, uh, here we have, uh, so we've got three different RSL genes, one, two, and three. Okay, and this is a control panel down here, just to, to make sure the experiment is working. And the blue precipitate indicates cells that are accumulating RSL RNA. Basically, the gene is being expressed in those cells, and it's not being expressed in the white cells. And so what you can see here are these blue spots on the surface of the root, and these, each of these cells, each of these spots is a developing hair cell, a cell that's just a form a root hair. <coughs> so this tells us that these genes that control root hairs formation in Arabidopsis are probably doing the same in rice, but ultimately we'd want a functional test. We'd want to see if you can make a plant that doesn't have these genes, is root hair development and growth defective? And this is preliminary data to this effect. So here's a close-up of a wild-type uh, rice root. You see it's very furry looking here. And then this is a, an RSL mutant. So the only difference between this plant and this plant is that the RSL gene has been knocked out, is non-functional in this plant, while it's functional here. And these root hairs are much shorter here than they are here. So that tells that the RSL genes really are controlling the development of, of root hairs. So we're on first base, as the Americans would say. Uh, it looks like the RSL genes are controlling the, the development of the root hairs in, in rice. But we have a problem here, and I think the fact that we're giving this lecture in December in Oxford really says something. December in Oxford is not good for rice. <laughs> it's, so while we can collaborate and we can do a small amount of rice work, really we want another model. And so what we've been using is a temperate grass, which is closely related to wheat. Um, uh, this is it here. This is Brachypodium distachyum. Uh, and it's, it's from Turkey uh, originally, so it's a small grass, it's essentially like a long grass. Uh, and uh, the reason it's important to us is it's got a very small genome, so there's a small, relatively small amount of DNA in the genome. That means we can sequence it, so we can get a full list of the genes relatively easily. For me, what's even more important again is that we can transform it, okay? So we can take foreign DNA and introduce it by transformation in, in, into this plant. And it's more importantly, it can grow at standard laboratory temperatures, 21 degrees, and it has a very rapid generation time. So we can go from seed to seed in about two months. So, so some work that we did in Brachypodium in six months that took us over two years, two and a half years to do it in rice. So for me, the beauty of using something like Brachypodium, which isn't a crop, is that it's like allows us to develop prototype technologies. So you know, when engineers they, you know, build you know, big engines or big flying machines, whatever it is they do, they'll always build prototypes to see do they work. They'll test out the principle of what they're doing. Okay? And we can use Rackpodium as essentially a technological prototype. We can do experiments very rapidly, we can tweak, we can really get our experiments working perfectly, and then once we've really fine-tuned the technology, then we can move it into the crop. And so that's why we're using Rackpodium. So this is a, a, sort of a family tree of the grasses here. So we've got rice here. Then we've got barley and wheat. And then sister to this barley and wheat clade is Rackpodium. So it's, we're, we and a lot of other people are using it to try to understand how barley and wheat work without actually working in barley and wheat because they're very difficult to work with. And I also already mentioned the, the real reasons why we can't do this work in rice. Okay, so you've seen this before. I showed this to you when we were trying to identify rice genes. Well, now we're using it to identify brachypodium genes, and we've looked at where the genes are expressed, and they're expressed in the hair cells. I'm going to bore you with that. But I am going to tell you about the more exciting results. So what we've done here is this is a normal, we call it a wild-type brachypodium. So this is the normal density of hairs that we form. We see just as hairs are beginning to form in a root. So what you're looking at here is the surface of a root. The meristem is down through the floor, and again, the leafy shoots are up through the ceiling. And this is the normal density of root hairs that you can get. 
If we now take the RSL genes, RSL1, 2, or 3, and overexpress them in the wrong cell, so these, this gene is now, instead of being just expressed in the hair cells, it's expressed in every cell. And it's also being expressed at very high levels in every cell. And what you can see is that every cell in these epidermis are forming the root hairs. So this is what we want to see. Overexpress these genes, you get a lot of root hairs. This is another image. So this is the, the, the cute uh, wild type here with short hairs, and then these are increasingly longer hair variants, where if we overexpress these genes, we get much longer root hairs. So I, we're, we're doing a few tricks in Brachypodium to test this technology and to fine tune. But I just wanted to. Uh, share one very preliminary piece of data. I haven't spoken about this next slide anywhere, so uh, um, I'm very excited about it. What we've done is we've actually looked at grain yield in this little weedy grass to see if growing transformation with these RSL genes would have any effect on, on grain yields. And it's very early days, so what I really want you to look at here is, is these aren't seed, these are grains, so I borrowed this slide from a postdoc. Grain weight in wild type, we were getting um, 100%, so this is uh, 1.2 grams. If we look at the overexpressors, we're seeing 1.6 grams. This is an increase of 33%. Hey, that seems modest, but if by expressing one gene, we can increase yield by 30%, this would be humongous. So these, obviously these experiments are being uh, repeated. We've, done, we've got preliminary evidence in wheat. We're getting even more dramatic differences in wheat. We're developing the technology to really make sure that the effect we're seeing is due to the expression of these genes in the root hair. But if we can, it may be that what we're doing is we're actually allowing the plant to more effectively utilize the phosphate that's in the soil uh, that uh, otherwise, it would miss. And so, this is an example of how doing some pretty useless science and trying to understand how hair our cells grow and develop may, down the line, actually lead to the development of some technologies that may, in certain instances, allow the development of crops that are better able to uh, extract small amounts of phosphate from soils where. There is phosphate present, but it's darn hard to get at. For the last part of the talk, I'm going to move over to nitrogen. Because nitrogen is uh, just as important, and some people say more important than phosphorus. It sort of depends on what sort of soil you've got in your field. Um, and it's really important for uh, all crop productivity. Now, some plants go to extreme lengths to get nitrogen. <laughs> so, uh, in plants that grow in uh, um, peat bogs, there's essentially no nitrogen, and in raised bogs, the only nutrients that get into a, 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 the peat essentially come from the air. So, there's not very much nitrogen there. And so, these uh, organisms sort of resort to digesting animals as a very good source of, of nitrogen. But it's a rather specialised pastime, so I'm not sure many animals do it. But there's another, probably uh, more intriguing uh, interaction uh, that allows plants to actually get nitrogen. See, the reason nitrogen is a problem, like I said earlier, is there's a lot of it in the atmosphere, but there's very little of it in the soil. And what's in the soil is usually dead and decaying organic matter. And, uh, not, and bacteria are turning this over very quickly. So as soon as there's any organic matter there decaying, bacteria tie it up very quickly, and the plants really have a difficult time getting it. So having sensed that, uh, a number of species have come to an arrangement, so to speak, with bacteria. And so what they do is they actually cultivate their own nitrogen-fixing bacteria in the root systems. So members of the Fabaceae, the, the, the peas and beans, essentially have developed nodules in their roots in which they've created an oxygen-poor environment which is just perfect for the growth um, of nitrogen-fixing bacteria of the rhizobium group. And it's in these nitrogen-fixing nodules uh, that these plants essentially get their nitrogen in exchange for carbon-rich molecules uh, that they derive via photosynthesis. So this is a, a close-up 
of uh, what one of these things look like. So we've got our plant, schematic plant here. This is the root system. And here we're looking at the, these spherical, almost spherical, um, nodule structures, the sites. And at the center of these, you can see this blue stain here. These, uh, have, these um, nodules contain bacteria that are expressing the, the gustine. And the gustine produces a, a blue precipitate. So where you see blue there, there's a bacteria. Okay, and so a bacteria. And so these bacteria are growing in, inside. And if you take a slice through one of these nodules, um, this is the structure we see. So this slice here cuts through the root here, the root uh, cylinder here. So that's the root cylinder. This is the center of the cylinder. Okay, and then this structure here is represented in this big mass. And then this very dark stain here is where the bacteria are. And so this region is kept um, anoxic essentially. So uh, these plants produce essentially a hemoglobin that mops up any oxygen because these bacteria, because oxygen inter, inter, interferes with the chemical reaction um, that is uh, nitrogen fixation. So there's quite a lot of energy expended by the plant to keep these bugs happy. Now we know through genetic analysis, not only in the bacterium, but in genetic analysis in the host plant, what the sequence of events is during the formation of a nodule structure. But very simply put, uh, you've got a, uh, a, your bean plant growing here, and it produces flavonoids, these small chemicals that it secretes into the soil. These are sensed by the bacterium, and the flavonoid actually causes the expression of genes called nod genes. These are nodulation genes. These nodulation genes then result in the formation of a nod factor, which causes root hair curling in the host. And then in this curl, this shepherd's crook structure, these red bacteria uh, are attached, and then they form a thread that allows them to migrate from this shepherd's crook type structure through this root hair cell and then ultimately to invade this region here in the cortex forming ultimately this nodule with this red region in the center where the bacteria form. So you've got this choreography between the plant and the bacterium that uh, allows the development of this structure. Now if in the last 10 years, we've learned a lot about the genes and proteins that control this process in the plant. So I'm not going to go into any detail, but say um, we can say that you know, there are proteins on the surface of the cell, of the plant cell, to which this nod factor, this is a small chemical that's produced by the bacteria, binds. This causes conformational changes in this protein, which activates uh, a signal transduction cascade in the cell, and this is essentially like, uh, a telegraph wire going from the cell surface to the nucleus, and then this results in activation of genes that are required for uh, the development of a nodule. So we have this structure here, these proteins, they sense nod factor, it's like throwing a switch, the switch is thrown, and then the signal events leads to the activation of genes and the formation uh, of nodules. Now, like my useless science, this very academic science, uh, this knowledge can be applied. And now, a major aim is to, using this knowledge, can we somehow move the ability to form nodules from the Fabaceae, from the pea family, into the grass family? So could we make wheat plants, for example, that didn't need nitrogen fertilizer, but were able to generate their own nitrogen fertilizer. And so this was a dream uh, by Norman Borlaug. So this is uh, an excerpt from his Nobel Prize le um, lecture given in 1970. So Borlaug won the, um, the Nobel Peace Prize for the Green Revolution, for essentially pioneering the use of a variety of genetic alleles that hugely increased yields after World War II. He started working in Mexico at the Wheat Reading Institute there in 1944, and over the next 30 years produced a large number of varieties that uh, I alluded to earlier in the talk. So these were varieties that required a lot of nitrogen, a lot of water, but their yields were astronomical compared to previous. 
But he, despite having made great inroads, his dream was to see green, rigorous, high-yielding fields of wheat, rice, maize, sorghums, and millets, which are attaining, free of expense, 100 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare from nodule-forming nitrogen-fixing bacteria. His dream was that we'd be able to use, if we could identify those genes that control modulation in peas, could we now introduce those genes into wheat, maize, and rice, and allow those plants to be essentially free of nitrogen fertilizer. Now, he died uh, last year, the year before, and his dream hadn't come true uh, then. And it still hasn't come true, but there are some interesting experiments that are telling us that maybe we've identified at least some of the genes that may be important in this process. You've seen this picture before. This is uh, the close-up of a root with these little nodules for, that are for, um, fixing nitrogen. Now the key here is that the bacterium is key to the formation of these structures. We never see nodules forming unless there are bacteria around. Okay? And remember that picture I showed you where the bacterium produces nod factors which causes the root hair curling, which then initiates the formation of the nodule. These plants don't make nodules if there's no bacteria. So one of the genes that's been identified that controls the formation of nodules is called DOMI3, DMI3. And DMI3 uh, is critical for the formation of a nodule. So if you've got a DMI mutant, DMI3 mutant, it won't make any of these spheres. So it's absolutely required. But uh, Giles Olderoyd, who works at the John Innes Center, made a mutant version of DMI3. And he expressed it in the plant, and you can see this is the result. So this is a plant, and this harbors a DMI3 gain of function. So this is a, a version of DMI3 that's uh, been mutated, so a few allyls have been changed, and it's made this hyperactive version of the protein. So normally the protein might work this much, but in this version it works this much, so it's really hyperactive. And what you can see here is it's forming what look like perfectly normal nodules along the length. And if you take a slice through one of these, here's the, the, the root. This is sliced through this part here, in this orientation. This looks pretty similar to this. And then if you look here, you've got a pretty normal looking nodule, except there are no bacteria. So we're not seeing this very intense stain. There are no bacteria on this plate. So what they've been able to do using the MI3 is they've been able to program the nodulation uh, developmental system in the absence of bacteria. Now this is in a pea plant. So unfortunately it's not a wheat plant. But what this is telling us is that if you take this gene and express it in a pig, you can get it to make a nodule without bacteria in there. So, so this is the first step. So this tells us that DMI3 is important. Now the next experiment that they've done and doesn't work, unfortunately, is they've introduced DMI3 into cereals. And it doesn't, it's not sufficient to cause a cereal to form a nodule. So it's likely that we need many more genes to be introduced in order to do it. But this is a very important experiment because it tells us for the first time that we really have identified key genes that are required for the formation of the, the nodule and that they can form nodules in the absence of bacteria. So this dream of Borlaugs to produce nitrogen-fixing wheat hasn't been realized. And so two weeks ago, I did a literature search on this to see you know, had there been anything done on it. And the only thing that I came up with is a, a very questionable study uh, which is presented here. And this is a, involves a, a bacteria called Klebsiella, so it's nothing to do with rhizobium. And what these people have done is they've taken uh, Klebsiella, this cultivar 342, and, uh, and incubated uh, wheat plants with it. And you can see that they, they turn green. Whereas if they have a mutant of KP342 that cannot fix nitrogen and inoculate wheat plants with that, then these plants that are grown in limiting nitrogen conditions essentially don't green up, so they, they grow, but they don't grow very well. So what they're telling us, saying, is that 
by co-cultivating the wheat alongside this, this particular line of Klebsiella, they can get Klebsiella to fix nitrogen and give it to the plant. And so this is the, the same uh, experiment here. And then they've quantified it here. So these, the, the white and the gray represent different soil conditions. And this is the uninoculated control. And if they take this Klebsiella uh, uh, 342, they increase by approximately 30% the uh, amount of uh, chlorophyll biomass, that's a chlorophyll that's produced, which is a, a measure of, of growth. And if they take this same line in which they've knocked out one of the genes required for nitrogen fixation, then you essentially get the same as, as you do with the uninoculated. So this is suggesting that the idea of making wheat or getting wheat to produce, a, to, um, to form a relationship with the bacterium that will supply it with nitrogen is possible. But it's not very effective. It hasn't been taken up and it's unlikely to work. But the hope is that using the technology that I've highlighted in the previous slides, that maybe we can do it. That's all been very positive, saying, look what we know. Using this knowledge, we can now go ahead and begin to develop technologies that will allow us to, to make plants that may fix their own nitrogen, that can mine more effectively for phosphorus, and that can escape the, the toxicity that um, is aluminium in massive soils. But we've got to be careful here. What we really need to avoid here is exhausting the soils because soils are huge natural resources. We tend to think of water as a natural resource, or oil as a natural resource, or gold or diamonds as a natural resource. Soils are a very important natural resource. Uh, and we, if we develop these new technologies, we need to use them in a sustainable way whereby we maintain soil fertility, we maintain carbon content in the soil, and soil nutrition levels. So we can't just use these plants to take up even more nutrient out of the soil in an unsustainable way, because then we're just putting off the inevitable uh, another few years. But if we pull together new technology and use it in a sustainable way, then there is a, a, a way forward. And this is a, something that I picked out of a recent science paper from Charles Godfrey in, in the zoology department recently. And they were looking at the, the future of food production, and they, they reviewed the literature and there was a, a nice project that was done in Niger between the late 19, uh, started in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And uh, donors just provided money to local farmers and allowed them to uh, preserve the soils that they had. So they started to use uh, um, soil preservation systems that they hadn't been using until then. They were retaining water. They were maintaining carbon content of the soils. And what I want you to see here is that with a small amount of attention over a long period, you can actually restore uh, um, quite a bit of fertility to a system. So this is a satellite image taken in 1975. And this is a, it's, it's not exactly a savannah, but there are small, this is sort of grassland, and these are small shrubby trees, you know, these black spots. And this is a photograph that's taken in the same region uh, 30 years later. And the evidence is that this increase in shrub cover is due simply to the practice that have been, the local farmers have engaged in, in uh, conserving water and maintaining the small practices that allow them to maintain the high, relatively high carbon content of the soil. And at the same time, these farmers were maintaining a subsistence living from the soil. So they weren't becoming multi-millionaires by any chance, by any way means, but what they were doing is they were maintaining a systematic, or sorry, a sustainable uh, agricultural system whilst um, uh, being able to uh, um, maintain their, their, their living standards. So what I've told you today, I started off with these sort of pretty apocalyptic numbers of you know, huge population increase and the fact that we're going to have to um, probably use uh, some really important lands in terms of biodiversity for agriculture um, in the next 40 to 50 years. And I told you that some of this new land that's going to come under the plough 
is likely to be not as productive as, uh, as, as previous land that's been used in agriculture, and that really, if we are to use it, then we may need to think about developing plants that have enhanced uh, resistance to uh, aluminium. And so for aluminium here, see uh, salinity in other systems, because salinity in agriculture is a huge problem due to the large amounts of irrigation that have taken place over the last 50 years. So large amounts of uh, uh, Australia, Spain, and the west coast of the United States are suffering with huge salinity problems. And so uh, people are developing new cultivars um, based using identifying genes that control responses to salinity, these salt resistant varieties are being developed. Um, but like I say, we need to uh, maintain uh, the whole um, uh, ecosystem balance if we're going to use them. And then I talked about some emerging technology that indicated that we may be able to develop plants with higher nutrient uh, um, uptake capabilities. And then I mentioned Borlaug's dream of making plants with, uh, their, that were able to make their own nitrogen. Uh, I guess I'll just end there. And this is the group of people that I have the pleasure of working with up in, in plant sciences. And I've got a number of affiliations. And these are people who actually pay for me to, to do this research. So, mm. so thanks very much for listening. <laughs>